Hi, everybody. Paul here, the host of the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast, and I'm also known as Old Pastor Paul, the TikTok pastor. Glad you're with me today with for part two of my series with Jordan Penner Maddox talking about a millennial view of the church, which is a topic I love to talk about on an ongoing basis. But first, let me tell you about something that really excites me. You know I love my book, Joseph Comes to Town, When the Religious Right Becomes Religiously Wrong. And I love it not because it's just my work, although of course I'm going to love it because of that, like a parent loves their kids. But I love it because I think it's so pertinent to what's happening in the culture right now that everybody needs to read it and at least consider this view of how Jesus might look at the evangelical church and its politics today and respond based upon how he responded to the church and its politics in the first century. So I want you to have the book, and you can order it, and there's a whole lot of ways to do that on uh, on our website, pastor-paul.com. We'll take you there. But I want to tell you specifically about how you can hear the religious right become religiously wrong, and that's through the Joseph audiobook series, and you can't get it anywhere except the nonpartisan evangelical Patreon community. Patreon's a wonderful website that helps creators get financing to continue to do their creating, just like Shakespeare had patrons and Galileo had patrons that helped him do his scientific studies. Now we have Patreon to help support these creative and discussion-creating communities. And if you go and join right now, you can join for as little as $5.99 a month. Um, you can get the first seven segments of our audiobook. We decided to release the audiobook only in our Patreon community and to do it in segments, 10 total segments. And six of those are out, and we just added segment seven. So go to Patreon. If you go to my website, pastor-paul.com, and in the upper right-hand corner, if you're on the desktop, there's a button that says join us through Patreon. Um, for some reason, I can't get that button to show up on devices, so, uh, on, on your iPhone or your Android. And so if, if you're there, then you can just go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash N-P-E podcast, nonpartisan evangelical podcast. So that's patreon.com slash N-P-E podcast. And then you get the audiobook, and later on in this podcast, I'm going to tell you how you can join a community of folks having a discussion group around the book. A lot of us are looking for community these days, and we're going to do it in a discussion group around the book, Joseph Comes to Town. So remember, audiobook series, go to pastor-paul.com, click on that Patreon button to find out how to join, or you can go directly to the Patreon site at patreon.com slash NPE podcast. Now, having said that, let me introduce you again to Jordan Penner Maddox. You may have heard him in our last podcast, a young man that does a podcast here in my area around Fresno, California, that's called Fresno's Best Podcast. But he's a former seminary student, uh, grew up in a Christian evangelical environment, and now is asking some really important questions about the church. And you know, I'm a sucker for millennials asking good questions about the church. So I had a chance to sit down and talk with Jordan again via the miracle of Zoom. And you can hear that now on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast right here on NPEPodcast.com. Enjoy. For those willing to listen, learn, and have eyes to see and ears to hear, 
This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Challenging the mindset of right-wing Christianity and encouraging people to have their minds renewed and hearts transformed. What knucklehead, mush-for-brains evangelical leaders are trying to, uh, to overthrow Trump. It's a special kind of dumb and calling yourself a Christian. Let's have better conversations about the life modeled in the Bible so we can truly tell the world God is not mad at you. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at npepodcast.com. We need a breaking news thing at on you know 24 hours a day on cable news. So everything has to be an emergency, a crisis, a a thing. And and it's it's actually the interesting thing about you know Donald Trump calling Joe Biden Sleepy Joe, and now that Joe Biden is president, I think we're all kind of like, man, it's nice not to have an absolute freaking chaos emergency every three hours of every day. Yeah, I think you're experiencing what we're all experiencing, which is after being released from a kidnapping, like you don't know what to do with your time exactly. <laughs> it's like you have the, you know, the freedom of 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 security. I, you know, I it's hard to, I I I almost go on Twitter just once a day just to see if he's there, you know? Just to make like, sure. Just like the kid opening up the closet door that is not sure if the monster's there, but just wants to check, you know, just wants to check. <laughs> Well, well, you and I both do podcasts on a number of topics, but we're here talking today because you shot me an email the other day and said, what about this pro-life thing? I, I'm not sure. I don't know. What was your feeling on that? You, you were a little bit uh, uh, struggling with the idea of even the title of pro-life, perhaps? Well, I think I'm having... Uh a little bit of difficulty understanding because I'm sympathetic to evangelical Christians having grown up one and in that world. Um, And I, you know, if you believe a lot of the things that evangelical Christians believe uh, their behavior makes sense. Um, You know, if you under, if you take their um, premises to be true behavior makes sense, but you know, like any uh, group, sometimes, you know, your beliefs have these kind of inherent contradictions. And I'm seeing that really present with the pandemic and how people are treating, uh, you know, 400,000 people dying um, while at the same time holding to these titles of pro-life or Christian or something. And it, 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 it just, it, it, it just irks me because it's, it's just this blatant, hypocrisy. And I, I don't like to jump on hypocrisy because we're all hypocrites, right. but I mean, it's, it's just, it's such a powerful argument against Christianity that, that people are just not giving a shit about masks that are just in the streets, you know, just doing, just living their daily lives. And I, I, I think the moment that it, I got really upset was there's a local pastor of a large church uh, that said something, you know, I think the church's name has somewhere to do something to do with collecting water at some, you know, as some hole that's in the ground somewhere. <laughs> um, and, and some, and then he said something about, you know, well, we just need to open things up. We're all going to get it anyway. And that mentality I think is so anti-Christian that it's like, 
I, for me, it's just, it's, 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 it's borderline. Well, it's heretical for one, but for two, it's, it's just disgusting. And I, and I, I don't understand it. I'm trying to be sympathetic, but for me, I think pro-life has to be universal because Christianity is a, is a universal religion. It's, it's a call for, you know, the redemption of everything. And no, no, it's a very exclusive religion. Yes. Yeah. Very exclusive. So I, you know, I mean, we could talk about pro-life and where it comes from. I mean, the history of abortion in the United States is really interesting yeah. um, because it hasn't always been, I mean, it's in the last 40 years. So the late seventies, early eighties, that kind of evangelical pro-life emerged as a movement. Um, it was a Catholic thing before that, before <laughs> you know, we could talk about evangelicals and Catholics and, and all that. Yeah. But, uh, I think uh, the, the, the Southern Baptist Conference even wrote that into a yearly statement that Roe versus Wade abortion was a Catholic issue, not for Protestants, right? Am I correct before? I, I think so. I think so. It's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. So before 1840, basically abortion was pretty widespread and there wasn't really legal issues with it. Um, Christians got, a, I mean, everyone was a Christian back then. Um, so every, you know, Christians regularly got abortions. It was something that they commonly did. And they use like uh, homeopathic medicine as opposed to, you know, kind of the surgical procedures we have. Um, and they would go to some like basically witch doctor uh, to get some brew to kill the fetus. Um, and, the, the kind of demarcation for when they could do it or not was quickening was the idea. So like the, the feeling of movement indicated life as if that's what indicates life. I mean, you know, there's stuff in my fridge that's moving around that shouldn't be. And I don't think that's an indication of life, um, but yeah, it was. And then anti-abortion laws, interestingly emerged at, kind of as a, uh, what do they call it? A credentialing crisis uh, because there were uh, physicians that wanted to be able to dictate when someone got an abortion. And they looked at these kind of homeopathic doctors as charlatans, and they wanted to force them out of the industry to control abortions. And that happened in the late 19th century. But then at that point, the physicians uh, worked to pass these laws around 1900 that restricted uh, abortions to only physician approved procedures. And so it was really a credentialing crisis. Um, and then, you know, we have what happened with Roe v. Wade. Uh, we have the 1960s. So there's this, there's a very complicated history. But I, I think for a lot of Christians, you know, they see things that are happening today as, as, as have always been true. You know, the beliefs that right. we have now, we're always there. And it's just not true. They weren't always there. And I think part of it is a lack of literacy, right? We don't read about our past, understand where we come from. Um, it's, you know, and we could talk about, I, I bitched and moaned about non-denominational stuff last time we talked. We don't have to talk about that again, but I think yeah, that's yeah. A part of the problem as well. Um, but yeah, it's such an interesting phenomenon. And it's, you know, it really has nothing to do with pro-life in my mind. Uh, pro-life is so, so much bigger than this one single issue to, to narrow it down to one single issue seems, yeah, again, I, I, I don't want to use the word heresy because I don't want to sound like some kind of Spanish inquisitor. It's the second time you've said it now. So, 
Well, and I and I'm obviously influenced by Ross Douthat's great book. Um, what's it called? Something heretical nation or mm-hmm. nation of heretics or something. Uh, but I'm using heretic just in the sense of people are making it up as yeah. they go. They're just making it up as they go, and that's that's fine. Um, but what you're doing is not Christian necessarily. It's something else, and that's that's my issue. I think it's a important, and I I heard you say this, that we can understand the passion people have around the issue of abortion. And if you truly believe life begins at conception, it is a passionate issue for you. But there are many things that we have passionate issues around that haven't become the issue that swamps all of Christianity. And, Mm -hmm. And so my argument always for people is, if we have an issue that that literally makes us say either you're on the right political side of this issue or you're going to hell, we better damn well sure make that issue is enunciated loudly and strongly and often in the Bible, if our, if our beliefs actually are based on the Bible. And, and I just don't think abortion's in there. In fact, the only places where abortion is even closely dealt with in the Bible seem to say in numbers, God gives a concoction to make it happen for a woman that's accused of her husband of being adulterous. And in another place in Exodus, um, it seems to say that if a man strikes a pregnant woman and she miscarries, he has to pay a fine. But if she dies, he has to pay with his life. And so it would seem to indicate the Bible values the mother's life more than the the preborn uh, the preborn child, if you will, whatever term we want to use on that, and even I think you could say the Bible is pretty clear that Adam, as a created human being, was fully formed but not alive, didn't have a soul until the breath came into him, which, as my understanding, is the Jewish tradition. So, I'm asking where we get the idea, not just that abortion is bad. You know, I can understand where you can cobble some verses together and come up with that idea and feel passionate about it, but that it's this primary issue that usurps everything, even the gospel, even to where that issue has is chasing the next two generations away from the faith and away from the church, and we think that's okay. So I guess that's where my place is on it is we can argue whether you should be pro-life or pro-choice, and those arguments are happening all the time, but I'm asking... Where did it become this primary issue when, as you said, it it truly wasn't a primary issue until the election of 1979, as far as I can tell from history? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, there's it feels like there's a few problems here that, that need to be addressed. Number one is obviously the consistency of the term pro-life, right? And that's what, that's what I'm trying to tap into a little yeah. bit. I mean, the second issue, though, is the use of the Bible, right? Is the Bible meant to be a prescriptive rule book that's used to help us navigate the 20th century? I mean, I I don't know if I want uh, a a random assortment of Jews from the BCE to tell me how to navigate the 20th century. I mean, certainly there's a a repository of wisdom there that needs to be, you know, dug up and understood and helped to live our lives. You know, there's a reason we still read Plato and there's a reason we look to the ancients for wisdom, 
but there's also some things that the ancients didn't know about like science and stuff. Um, at least they, you know, are kind of modern understanding of science. And then the, the other issue is that the Bible is pretty loose with, I mean, at least the God of the Bible is pretty okay with killing people. Um, and, you know, you might say, well, you know, I mean, you might make this uh, again, to go back to heresy, you might make this heretical statement like, well, the Old Testament God killed people and then Jesus came around and, you know, things got better. And then I'd be like, well, what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? You know, they, I mean, it, it, mur- you know, killing them was, was perfectly okay at that moment. And so the Bible's not consistent on it. The Bible is not consistently pro-life for everybody all the time. Yeah. And the problem, I think, is, is not that the Bible is inconsistent, is that we're using it in the wrong way. Right as a rule book, as opposed to as a description of what happened or a, you know, a kind of uh, theological treatise on helping us understand who God is as a, you know, so it's the rule book problem that I think is the biggest problem. And, you know, I I, I think, I think the universalism, we can talk about that in a second. That's a whole different thing. But I think until we get Christians from this idea that the Bible is a rule book, Like, we're just going to go in circles about this crap over and over and over again. And there's so many people to blame. We should just create a list. We really should. (laughs) Well, I hope you're really enjoying this conversation with Jordan. He's an amazing young guy, and I love these conversations, even though it does challenge me a little bit. Sometimes I told you at the beginning of this that I, I about my book, Joseph comes to town when the religious right becomes religiously wrong. And now I want to start to have some community around the book with discussion groups. So would you join me for a discussion group? Would you like to have the community of people getting together and wrestling with the concepts of the book? Do you believe Jesus would have reacted this way if he were on earth in the 21st century Let's check it out together in our discussion group. Want to join? Join my Patreon community. You can go to pastor-paul.com and click on that. Join the Patreon community button in the upper right-hand corner, or you can go straight to the Patreon site at patreon.com slash NPE podcast. That's nonpartisan evangelical NPE. So the address is patreon.com slash NPE podcast. And you can just let me know through the site. Hey, I want to join the book group. You must be a part of the Patreon community to join. There is a slight fee with that. And it's not tax deductible. I want to pay taxes. So this is a for-profit ministry that I do. So your benefit's going to be here on earth and in heaven, not from the IRS. Okay, I hope that's okay. All right, now back to our discussion with Jordan Penner Maddox, a millennial talking about some hard questions for the church. You know, what I hear, the silly thing I hear quite a bit is like, well, I take the Bible literally. And I'm like, okay, have you have you looked at a woman lustfully lately and plucked out your eyeball? You know, you know, yes. nobody takes the Bible literally. Let's let's be honest. Yeah. Um, there's no way you can take every verse literally. I so I'm I've been a pastor for many years and and I think the Bible is is a particularly significant masterful book in a lot of ways with a lot of mystery that makes it worthy of something beyond just another book. Um, I, I think, but, but we have to be honest about what it is. We have to be honest that 
there was a group of guys that got together and said, okay, this goes in and this doesn't. And they argued about it and we're not sure they got it all right. And also that it was written from a Middle Eastern first century perspective, which means it's not easily transferable to 20th century, you know, 21st century America. You're, you're absolutely right. And I believe some of that bash, you know, God says bash the baby's heads against the stones were human beings saying, ooh, we did this. We need to justify it. Let's blame God. <laughs> God told us to do that when we did that, you know, and I think God would be like, nah, wasn't, don't blame that on me. And, and then, you know, also the that we were taught, of course. Oops, did I break up there? Just for a second. Okay. The, the theological construct is that, you know, is covenants. God was working in covenant with humanity. And so in the old covenant that he was working under, this is what that agreement looked like. Jesus fulfilled that covenant. And now we're living in a new contract with God, if you will, so to speak. So all of that plays into it. But all of us, all of us, and again, this is where we need to be honest, pick and choose I'm going to believe that verse, and I'm not going to apply that one to my life. And particularly when we start talking about abortion or the other biggie, homosexuality, we are without question saying, okay, th see those three verses in the New Testament? Those mean everything to us. And if you come under those three verses, you can come to our church, maybe, but there's a line which you will never be able to cross. Yeah. Um, while other verses like divorce, we just say, yeah. Come on, what the heck? You're good tithers, so let's have you. You know, yeah. Um, and a, so that's. I just think we need to be honest about what the Bible is, and then and then we can use it where it's constructive and helpful and a great story of the universe interacting with humanity and and get inspiration with that and not kill each other with it. I think it's just so liberating when you can let go of the kind of literal thing and then the rule book thing, and you can just read. I mean, you know, reading it for the first time once you've kind of let those things go is, is, is such a liberating experience. Cause you're just not, it's like, you're not trolling it for stuff. You know, you're not searching for things to exclude people. Like yeah. it's just, you're just looking to understand what it means. And I, you know, that's, and, and I'm particularly not saying that old idea of I can find a Bible verse to say anything I want to say. If I want to zing you with a Bible verse, it's in there. I can find it. Yeah. And as I, we were saying, I was saying before we started recording, it's a little bit like someone trolling Oliver Twist, Charles Dickens' novel, to find one sentence where a rich person is doing something right and say, "Wow, Charles Dickens is all about rich people," you know, as opposed to exploring exploring the 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 contradictions of industrial life in England, you know, to show the experience of the poor. You know, you can find something anywhere, and so that's yeah. why I don't know. I let, had, well, let me let me. So you yeah. made an interesting point about pro-life and the definition of the term pro-life, where do you see the dichotomy when talking about abortion and, and other issues? Um, so the dichotomy, well, I, what, what do you mean by dichotomy? I just want to understand the correct, the question. Well, I guess, I, I guess I was assuming you saw a dichotomy, you know, some would say, how can you be anti-abortion and pro-death penalty? Uh, how can right, you be right, anti-abortion right, 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 and pro-war, right. you know, pro-military? So I've, I've listed out these different areas where I see kind of dichotomies or contradictions or, 
or whatever you want to call them. I, we, don't, we shouldn't use the word hypocrisy anymore. It's been so overused by Christians that it's just, it's done. We need to retire it. And it's lost its original Greek meaning, you know, of, of actors. Um, so obviously the biggest one these days is the pandemic, right? And this kind of battle Christians are caught between uh, specifically right-wing Christians that kind of have this like uh, angry, like, conservative minority mentality that they don't want to be told uh, what to do by the government. But what that's created is this monster of I, I, it's more important that I not wear a mask than someone potentially dying of a disease. And if you're a Christian and you take these kind of, you know, this pro-life mentality seriously, you would do anything to save a life. I mean, I remember one of the most um, profound little anecdotes uh, that, uh, is told about you know what you would do to save a life is told by this philosopher Peter Singer who's a who's non-Christian uh, philosopher but wrote some really good philosophy and he tells a story about you know uh, imagine you're walking down a road and you're wearing a brand new suit uh, you just spent a thousand dollars in this suit it's for you know a job interview you have the next day or something or your first day of work and you're walking past a pond um, and there's a child drowning. You know, would you slowly take off your thousand dollar suit before jumping in the water to save the child's life? No, you wouldn't. You would just jump in, you'd ruin your suit, but you save a life. And I guess that what I'm asking is does the discomfort of wearing a mask? You know, obviously, there's the whole worldview out there about masks don't work, but we, you know, I don't want to go into that because that's its whole thing. But the question is, how far will you go to save a life? And that really, for me, dictates how, quote unquote, pro-life you are. So there's, uh, there's the age element, which is, you know, the more, more older people are dying of COVID than any other demographic group. And so do we value the, el- do we, do we value the infirm? Like one of the things I hear, and I hear this from Christians a lot, when we talk about, uh, you know, people dying of COVID, they ask, well, what'd they really die of? I've had that asked to me so many times, and mm-hmm. it's, it's hard not to have my head explode. Um, but I've tried to remain calm because the, the implication there is if you have, if you're overweight and have diabetes and COVID accelerates your death, somehow it's your fault. So then we have the, you know, the, the ill, you know, pro we have to exclude ill people from the pro-life worldview. And then we obviously have the geographical element. If you're born in the United States, um, your life is more valuable uh, than others, which we can talk about immigration uh, in that respect. Um, we can talk about the racial element. We can talk about right. the history of uh, how African Americans have been treated in the United States and other uh, groups and how places that they live. I remember when I lived in San Francisco, there's this um, part of town, uh, now the name of it's escaping me. It's kind of the old shipyards uh, where a lot of African Americans moved from the South during World War II to work on Navy ships for the war in the Pacific. Um, And there was some serious chemical leaks and toxins that were released in this area. And there's a famous rock where if you bring like a Geiger counter or whatever next to the rock, you can see the, see the poisons or the radioactivity or whatever it was. And down the street from this rock, there's an elementary school. Um, And it, it just, it just, it just exposes it all for you about, you know, 
who lives there and how much do we care about it? So there's that element of pro-life. Um, you know, so there's, and then we could talk about animal lives and we could talk about future lives with climate change. So to be truly pro-life is very hard. It's very hard. Right. And to be consistent about it is near about impossible. So we can do the best we can, but if we just limit it to the unborn, we're not pro-life. We're just pro-birth. That's right. all we are. We're pro-birth, right. which yeah, is fine. It's, it has always seemed to me like it's from conception to cutting of the umbilical cord, you really matter to us. Yeah. And then once that umbilical cord is cut, you are on your own, on your own. And, and I just think the thing, one of the things that Christians miss about the Bible is, is there is a constant theme of like God looking at people in people groups. So I'm talking about people who follow the Bible literally. He's, he's constantly, you know, Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets. Well, not every person in Jerusalem had ever killed a prophet, but he was right. saying sort of the mindset or the spirit, if you will, the, the group think was if a prophet comes and tells us what we don't want to hear, we want to get rid of that guy. And whether we literally murder him or just have murder in our hearts toward him, um, you know, it is a it is a corporate judgment. And I and this individualism of Christianity, where you make an individual decision between you and God, whether you're going to be in heaven one day or hell one day, and that's that's the key to Christianity, I think is missing the ongoing story that that God is saying. If you live this life modeled by Jesus, you're going to care about people more. And actually, you're, the judgment of how much you love me is how much you love your neighbor. And then Jesus did this funny story called the Good Samaritan, where he said, oh, by the way, your neighbor is that person you hate and doesn't think you don't think deserve, deserve God's love. That's your neighbor. And that's going to determine how much you love God by how much you love that person. So, so it's, there's actually this, this compulsion to this corporate heart and love for people that American evangelicalism particularly like is in direct opposition to. And, and so you said the word heretical. And I say that that rugged American Christian individualism is heretical to what the Bible actually says on an ongoing basis. Yeah, it's, it's hard to disentangle people's uh, ideologies and understand what they are. I mean, there's so many influences there. And, you know, there's, you know, I, I married into a Mennonite family and Mennonites have the, the their tradition is, is, is about thinking we need to go back to the beginning, right, as to find some pure form of the religion, but it just doesn't exist in my mind, at least. And I think, um, I think for me, it's, it's just doing the best you can, but also being honest about where you're limited and being honest about the contradictions. And I, I you know, I, I think another thing too is, is um, trying to, I, I, I'm always telling people to read more, but like, I, I mean, if, if, if your understanding of you know, Christianity is, is based on a local past. I mean, I, that's, that's an important part of the religion, but it, it's also part of the problem here as well. And I, but I think you're right. I think about this uh, individualism and I, you know, I, the other issue that I brought up that I wanted to talk about was this, uh, this other thing that I've seen, you know, since the protests last May 
um, is the reemergence of these thin blue line flags, mm. which I think have the same problem um, that pro-life does, which is um, they're taking something that's universal, which is, you know, the flag, which represents everybody. And they're making it about someone specific for an agenda. Mm. And that seems like the, the worst thing you could do. The absolute worst thing you could do is make it about someone specific. And I know that like, you know, I've talked to plenty of people that have, there's plenty of people in my neighborhood that have those flags and I've talked to a few of them about it and just kind of shared, you know, well, you know, the stars and stripes are about everybody and it, you know, changing, it'd be like me going back and taking the Bible out and adding some passages about myself or, you know, school teachers. I'm going to add a, I'm going to add a chapter about school teachers to Hebrews or something, you know, it, it, it just, it, 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 it's, it misses the whole point. It misses the whole point. And I, I think that's the crux of all the things we're talking about is that um, Christianity and, you know, the constitution, the United States, all these concepts are, you know, what makes them great is that they include everybody. Um, and we could talk about heaven and hell if you want to, and that, and the problems with that um, and including everybody. And I think, to go all the way is scary for a lot of people because it give it takes away your, you know, I'm in ness. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it's just not intellectually honest, you know, to, to take the other path. And if, you know, if it's, if for, for a lot of people, it's not about that. It's not about believing the right things. It's about, you know, I go to the church where they dig water out of a deep well, you know, I go to the certain place and I'm part of it. Right. Um, and that's just, it's just for them, it's just a, it's, it's an identity. It's a tribe. It's their inherent, you know, primal nature that, you know, comes from evolution that we just want to be in the right group and part of the right group. So the other chimpanzees don't kill us, you know, it's, it's just, it's all that. Right. And it's, it breaks my heart because, you know, it, it really limits us in what we can do. Yeah. It limits, it limits our compassion. It limits our love. And so for me, that's what makes it so hard to participate in any organized religion, even though I do, um, is that I see it as a crutch in a lot of ways. And there's something, there's something to be said about holding on to your culture and your traditions. Uh, but there's another thing in, if those traditions stop you from being open to others, then they're, they're bankrupt. Then they're, then they, they, you know, they need to end or change. I think it is. And I think it is the, the beautiful opportunity of the season. I think it's the gift that Donald Trump has given us is we really get to see who we are and decide who we are. You know, do we want to be that or do we not want to, I don't, I don't think you get to stay in the middle really anymore. And some people are trying to do it with unity or some other BS, but you really get to see, do I want to be this nationalistic race baiting people hating, you know, constitutionalist, which, which I find really ironic when you take the flag and you put blue lines on it and put pictures of Donald Trump on it and call yourself an American a true American, you know, which is really ironic or is, is life really about, is, is the life demonstrated by Jesus one of sacrifice and service to others and that we're going to function well when we're willing to lay down our lives for one another? And 1 John chapter 3 says, you know, if you, 
hate your brother, you're a murderer. You know, if you if you don't care about people around you, you're the same as the murderer in your heart. And it, and it has this really interesting passage about if you have resource and you see somebody in need and you don't give it to them, then you have no love of God in you. You are you are not a follower of God. And how we lost these concepts in the midst of all this, I, I have no idea. But I think I think the beauty of the story of Jesus wasn't to come and build this new exclusive religion. And that exclusiveness of we're in and on our way to heaven and they're out, and then add in this eschatology, end times belief of, and any day now Jesus is going to come and we're going to be out of here and everybody else is doomed and getting a 666 on their forehead, gives us this feeling of exclusivity that I don't have to give a shit about anybody. I can extend an offer for them to come join my church. And if they say no, then I hold no responsibility for them whatsoever. And, and again, as a Christian evangelical pastor, I would argue that ain't in the Bible. <laughs> what you're yeah. saying is diametrically opposed to the story of Jesus and the New Testament of the Bible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard because I, you know, this is, this is my background and there's, you know, when I, I, I left, uh, you know, I spent most of my childhood in Bakersfield, which is essentially the Bible Belt, and went to Christian schools and and did that. I believe thing. that's the buckle of the Bible Belt, by the way. Yeah, or the butt. Um, <laughs> um, uh, you know, it smells. Uh, no, I'm not, Bakersfield's, you know, is 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 a little bit underrated, but we we'll, you know, we don't have to talk about that. I agree. I agree. I, um, where was I going? I oh yeah, so I I moved uh, to San Francisco to go to college. And I, I met all of these kind of refugees, um, from all over the country that, had, you know, were gay and then were born in Nebraska and, you know, just, just escaped as soon as they had enough for a bus ticket or something. Um, and for them, it's, it's really hard, um, to ever reconcile, you know, with, with, uh, people who think differently. And I, I don't have that necessarily. I didn't have this like deep seated resentment towards these ideas or beliefs. I have more of, um, like, a sympathy and, um, kind of almost like a, like a, like a family members being picked on. Cause I think about some of these people that have been manipulating evangelical Christians. Right. I think about like someone like Newt Gingrich, who has famously said his favorite book is chimpanzee politics. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, how, how, you know, these theological issues, which are paramount are being treated as tools and weapons to manipulate kind of uneducated people. It, it just makes me sick. And so I, you know, I, I, I don't have a resentment, towards evangelical Christians that believe in any of these things. I have more of a, a sickness that um, these people are been, being manipulated by people in power to retain their power. And so I, I see it as a systemic problem, um, but I do agree with you. And I think a lot of what these people are doing are is not Christian, but theocratic. They want to control government and use God as a justification for doing that. Um, and it has nothing to do with the Bible whatsoever. And it has everything to do with power and control and, and uh, you know, keeping others out of it. And it's, yeah. I, I hope that there's a way forward. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to shit on people. 
um, because they don't know better. You know, I don't want to shit on people that, you know, their pastors read their Bible for them for their whole lives and they have one idea about it. Like to shit on them is, is to expose your kind of uh, moral callousness. Um, but at the same time, people are adults. And when you believe dangerous stuff, you know, and you, you take those beliefs and use them to disenfranchise other people, you know, someone, you know, we need to, we need to strike this balance between understanding that they've been manipulated, but also challenging these beliefs when we can. Right. And that's a, that's a tough line to walk and you're doing it. I mean, that's kind of what you're up to these days, which is great. Trying. Um, you know, and it's, it's a tricky thing to not piss them off, but also wanting to talk to them and try to make movements forward. I don't know. How do you, how do you, how do you think, your conversations, because I, I sometimes see your Facebook conversations. Those look exciting. Uh, but how have your conversations kind of gone as you've tried to disentangle these things? Yeah, it's a great question because I, 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 so I, I, again, trying to model life after Christ. If I call myself a Christian, that actually means one who follows Christ or wants to look like Christ or literally means little Christ. And and, and so I looked at what I was doing and said, okay, so let's compare this to, to what Jesus did. And he was brutal, brutal to the religious leaders and the religious system. He never said one good word about him. There's, a, in fact, a great passage. Gosh, where is it in the Bible? I, I think it's in, gosh, I should have the Bible memorized, right? But yeah. Yeah, these guys come to Jesus, and he's like ripping the Pharisees, ripping the Pharisees, and it says the the lawgivers came to Jesus and said, "Jesus, when you insult those guys, you're insulting us." And so the next seven verses are them then him ripping into them and tell, "Yeah, well, let me tell you what I really think about you guys." So he wasn't saying every Pharisee was a horrible person, but he was right. saying this system is terrible because it's destroying people. And, and the interesting thing is he didn't say the Roman government is terrible and sit there and rail against the Roman government and we need these zealots to overthrow the Roman government, even though it was an extremely uh, despotic conquering, military conquering government. But he said, this religious system that's tied in with this politics, that's the thing that's got to go. So what I've been doing for two years is is that same thing. Like this system is completely off. And at first I was kind of hesitant about that because I'm like, well, there's a lot of good things about it too. But after two years now of talking really with people like you, Jordan, I'm like, no, this system's really bad and it's really crushing people's lives. And the thing is, it's not all unintelligent, uneducated people that are stuck in this thing. I have some really smart, really good-hearted friends that are deep into QAnon, deep into end times conspiracy theories who today, January 28th, still believe Donald Trump is the president of the United States because God says so. And now I guess it's on March 4th, he's going to reinstate himself as president of the United States because Joseph Biden was sworn in at one four, at eleven forty five instead of noon. You know, <laughs> and at some point you got to say, "People, you are batshit crazy, and you have made a choice to go down a rabbit hole." And I don't have to accommodate that anymore because it's crushing 
a whole couple of generations of people. So the question now, a long way to get to your original question is how have those conversations gone? I'm, I mean, I'm really at a point where some people are just gone and they ain't coming back. And, and I don't think I'm going to be able to fix that. But what I have found then in having those discussions, and I think it's going to be somewhat of a seed change and maybe even a rebranding change for me, is what's rising up is a whole bunch of people who say, hey, I have a faith. I love God. I love Jesus. I love whatever. My faith looks like this, but I don't want it to look like that. And, and so I think, and I call it post-evangelical. There's sort of this post-evangelical world out there where people are really hungry for faith and community, but they just don't want it to look like this exclusive nationalistic white Jesus religion anymore. And so I, I think it's, again, the good opportunity of the season is we get to say, what does, what does legitimate, authentic faith look like? And how do I how do I come to you and say, faith looks like this to me? What does it look like to you without us both picking up guns and then deciding to shoot each other because we disagree on it? And I think God really likes that. So um, I, I don't know. I don't think we can fix that old time religion. And and Jesus didn't try to fix it when he was on earth. He just said, hey, see that temple? It's going to be totally destroyed and a new thing is coming. And so maybe we're just in another time in history where that religion has sort of worn out its welcome in, in our society and it's going to wind down and some ugliness is going to be in that transition, but something really new and beautiful is coming and arising in what I hear from people like you. You know, and, and I, you know, these conspiracy theories, it makes sense why people believe them, especially smart people too, because it makes sense of the world, you know? I mean, we're all yeah. trying to make sense of the world and these things have the benefit of making sense of every single part of it. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I, and, and especially people that are hurting. I, I recall this story. Um, my, I went to seminary. God knows why I, I did. And I, um, my, my seminary roommate was a chaplain on Skid Row. Um, and he would lead a Bible study with like a hundred homeless addicts of various kinds. And he would, we would sit around, you know, as we do in seminary, drinking whiskey and planning Bible studies. And he um, would craft these amazing kind of progressive Bible studies where like, it's all about showing how the Bible liberates the poor and, you know, Jesus is on the side of the oppressed. And he would, he would, you know, he, he'd be so like impassioned with this, like, I'm going to deliver this and like liberate their minds to show them that God loves them for exactly who they are. And he would deliver it to them. And the first thing they would say is, we were hoping you'd talk about revelation in the end times. We really want to learn more about 666. <laughs> and there's, you know, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of that in people that they are, you know, they want like vengeance and they want, you know, in and out. They want all. And so I think you're right. I think this old timey hits on something about us as humans that, that we like it. We like it. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not of the camp to, to get rid of it. I think it's, I think we just, for a lot of us, especially those of us who have a history of either trauma or damage from it, for us, it's about kind of letting it go. You yeah. Know? It's, it's kind of like a, you know, I mean, you'd go to therapy and for the first time and you learned about how bad your parents were or whatever. Um, and, you know, you're like, I don't want to be like them because they were so awful to me or whatever, whatever it is. Um, and the, the first thing you do is you get mad at them, you hate them, you blame them, you call them and said, 
this guy with a PhD in psychology told me you're a dick, dad. You know, you, 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 you do that. And then at a certain point, as maturity happens, you start to realize that they're just people trying to make sense of it and trying to do the right thing. Um, and even though you're not going to do what they did, you have compassion and you're no longer angry with them. You have sympathy and you just want a relationship with them. And so that's, you know, that's kind of where I'm at with religion these days. Cause I have, I have wonderful uh, people in my lives that I, I don't know why I I'm just on the well thing, but it, it's what it is. I have wonderful people in my lives that go to places like the well. And I think they are genuine people, even though they believe crazy shit and I, I care about them and I don't want, you know, cause at the core of me, I'm a materialist. Like I just want to be with people and, you know, whatever they think in their heads, I don't really care that much. I mean, it, you know, I, I think it's wrong, but I don't want to destroy a relationship just because you believe some crazy shit. Cause we all believe some crazy shit at the core. Right. Yeah. And I think, I, I think probably where I am and I've lost a lot of relationship in this um, because there is no room for dissension. There is no room for discussion. Either you're in or you're out. And and when you start questioning some of the very basic tenets of of evangelicalism, and they would certainly think that they are on a more progressive bent than their Catholic friends or somebody else. But when you start to say, I mean, ask ask Rob Bell, you know, if you say, Mm -hmm. well, is God really going to send a 16-year-old who says damn before he's hit by an 18-wheeler to eternal flames to, to be in anguish for the rest of eternity? And you say that, and the next thing you know, you know, Franklin Graham's calling you a heretic on the Larry King show. So there is no room, and, I, and I've had to make space in, in my life to say, I'm not going to fix that. But I'm not going to douse the message for those that have been traumatized from it and say, okay, let's, let's try to figure out what faith looks like on the other side of that. So I, I, I can, and I, I do coaching and I say to people, you can be totally grace filled towards your parents and still be honest about the things they did that injured your life and start to work those processes through. And so I can be grace filled for the evangelical church but it was right at the center of what happened on January 6th. And I have to stand up and say, guys, that is not, Yeah. can I say fucking okay? Yeah. I mean, really, because it makes me that mad. It's not okay, guys. Yeah. And, and any pastor that's not standing up after January 6th and saying, guys, we got to get out of this QAnon stuff. It is not from heaven. It is, it is evil and dark and will take you to a dark place. I think is derelict in their duty as a leader of people. And for one to say, eh, we're all going to get it anyway. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I have to blue- protect people from that. I can't help it. I got to stand no, up. No, I think you're right. I, I, and don't, and don't take my like, not wanting, cause I'm more talking about. Well, the, I'm me and you're you. I'm not, I'm not putting that on everybody. I'm just saying. Right. I, I'm more referring to the sheep and not the shepherds in this situation. Right the people leading these flocks of people into these ideas, like they're, they're public enemy number one in my book. For but, Franklin Graham, I hope there is eternal hell. I'm sorry, <laughs> just you know, a little bit of something in my heart that I need to confess there. I would love to see him in them, but sorry, forgive me, God. Well, yeah, I mean, 
But then I want to know. I know that's that's the problem with universal salvation as a as a concept. You know, the your asshole neighbor is going to be there. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's the worst part of it. It's <laughs> we believe in hell because we have neighbors and mother in laws. Right. Um, I you know, no, my mother in law is actually the sweetest person in the world. Um, but yeah, I think I think what at least the agenda here is to attack the messengers of these uh, deleterious ideologies that are hurting people and are causing violence. Like those, those are the people and, and they're broken too. And they've been trained by somebody else and, um, and they need to be saved, but they also need to be stopped, saved and stopped. And so I, you know, it's such a, do you believe in hell? No. Yeah. Not, not as a, not as the, not in the way that, uh, most Christians see, I don't, I don't really think that ever, I don't think that most Christians actually believe in hell. I think they're full of shit. And the reason is, is if you literally believe we're back to the literally that like, you know, if you don't pray a prayer, you're going to be sitting in some place for eternity. You're going to be, you're going to be like, the fire department just running all the time, right? Trying to save every single person. There are people that do this, but 99% don't. Yeah. 99% don't. And so if you actually, so I don't, I, I don't buy it. I don't think people actually believe it. I think I they, mean, if, if you really believed it and believed as you know, there are some religions that believe once you say the prayer, you can never go to hell ever again. There are others that think you can lose that salvation. So wouldn't it be gracious and grace-filled, once you get saved, you say the sinner's prayer, okay, let's kill you. Because eternity is so dour, you know, let's just let's just send you to heaven right now. It would make wouldn't things be, easier. Would that be grace-filled to do that? Because I don't want you to ever have a chance to lose this thing and end up in eternal damnation. Yeah. I mean, that's some like Kool-Aid in the jungle shit with whatever his name was. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's that's the logical conclusion of those belief systems, you know, as you wind up, you know, trying to catch a spaceship or trying to get somewhere sooner. And yeah, I and you you have to ignore a whole bunch of passages of the Bible. I I mean, I I'm I'm really and and I'm I'm very comfortable sometimes with saying, you know, I don't actually know the the answer, because sometimes I think we settle for silly answers. But the Bible talks about fire being a purifying force as much as it talks about being a punishing force. In fact, probably more, it talks about purification by fire. And so the the idea of, and this goes back to my asshole neighbor going to be in heaven with me, you know, I think we all face the consequences of our choices and our actions. And that is some form of hell. And you know, the young, the story of the young men going in the fiery furnace, they went in with ropes and they came out without ropes. The The fire actually burned their bondages off. And so maybe there is, you know, a karma type experience where you're going to go through hell because of the choices that you make, but that hell fire is going to be something purifying. And maybe that happens while we're on earth. Maybe that happens in eternity. I don't know. But I'm definitely at a place where the idea of even if there is an eternal pit of hell, I think you really have to want to go there and you really have to fight to get there. And God is fighting to keep you from getting there. 
Um, so this idea of you get to eternity, it's like, oh, you should have picked door number two, but you picked door number one, bummer, see you later, is ludicrous. Absolutely ridiculous. It, and it's it goes back to the pro-life thing, ultimately, because, I mean, if you're a Christian, you believe life extends beyond death, right? right. And right. so if you're pro-life, you know, you have to be pro-life after death, too, if you're a Christian. So it's it's just so complicated. And I, I, I really do think most people's beliefs are... Um, rationalizations of presuppositions that they already have. And I think hell is such a tricky one because it's such a demarcator of like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing, and that's what it's become. And it's, and it's sad. That's what it's become, but that's what it's become. And so to, to take that away from people, it's, it, it just feels like an injustice to them to take it away, you know, to take it away. Like, what's my reward? Well, I mean, you know, it is Hitler going to be there, you know, yeah. like it, 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 it <laughs> but I mean, at the same time, you have to, you have to break it down. So, you know, either. Okay. So if we take the Hitler example, cause a scary example, I admittedly, you're, you're um, going there. Okay. Yeah. But if we take him because it's the worst case scenario here. Um, right. Um, so he either, you know, was born that way, born a monster or something in his childhood made him a monster before his brain developed, right? Like at a certain point, we just have to ask like, what, what does it take? And, and then there's the, the second part, which is, do we even believe in free will anymore, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the bigger, that's even bigger than Hitler. Like, do we believe in free will? And what does it mean to choose something? So I, I think a lot of these questions are too big for the everyday Christian to think about. And it's much easier just to think, well, you either pay for the ticket and get in or you don't. And, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to think of this like pearly gates situation where you're like, you know, Jesus, you're, I still think you're a dick. So I'm going to go sit in the fire. For, I mean, it's just so absurd. It's just, it's almost like some kind of, you know, absurd, like Shakespearean comedy that someone would actually make that choice. I, I don't know. I, I mean, well, it's, and I'm more it's and such more a big see, topic. Seeing that, uh, that absurdity in like, so again, back, I, I get a lot of comments on things. I talk about abortion on social media and, and, I, and they'll sound like this, you know, Psalm 139 says he numbered our days before we were born. So how can you not think that abortion is murder? And <laughs> And, and so this is how my mind works. I'm like, well, if God knows our days before we're born, then doesn't he know that child's going to be aborted? I mean, it wouldn't he be aware of that? Or how would he be shocked? Like, oh, I planned this whole life out and then it got snuffed out. You know, it's it's nonsensical. It, it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. And again, it, so it doesn't come back to like, so let's celebrate abortion. It's awesome when people have unwanted pregnancies. You know, we're not there, but let's let's start thinking that there's a bigger picture to all of this. Um, and and you know, if if we're putting it in the context of God in the Bible, He has grace for that unborn child and a destiny and a purpose, either here or in the hereafter, and for the mother and father and everybody else involved as well. And and if he is this omnipotent, on, omniscient, 
all loving God, then he can cover all of that at the same time. And I don't have to sit and fret and feel like I need to call people baby killers and heretics because they disagree with me on it. It, it just takes away from the sting of it all, I believe. Yeah. And, I, and then I'll, we can I'll, get along. I, I wrote this down before we started as kind of like notes to myself, but I think this really captures it, which is uh, what I wrote down when I was thinking about like this concept of pro-life and Christianity. Um, I wrote that uh, the most challenging thing about Christianity is what makes it distinct, distinctive, which is its universal nature. Without that universal nature, we're just another local regional cult like the rest of them. But if you accept this universal promise, then suddenly pro, pro-life means not only saving fetuses, but migrant children and wearing a mask at Trader Joe's. That's really what it means at the core of it. Right. And so either you accept that or you don't. And that's cool. You know, I mean, the world has plenty of pagans, you know, I mean, ultimately I, I'm not, I don't want to force any, I just want to challenge people that if you want to adopt this, uh, you know, title and use it liberally, like people do, you need to, you need to accept the challenge and accept how hard it's going to be, right? Uh, Which is to, to, to be universal in, in your thinking. So by universal, you mean it's not exclusive to a group of people. It was for right. everyone. Right. Pro-life means, means everybody. And we could talk about our biggest struggle, you know, most people's biggest struggle, which is, you know, animals and the planet. Um, that's the one that we don't want to talk about because we're all so guilty with it. Um, and then obviously, you know, the people that pick the food and obviously the people that make our shit um, for 10 cents an hour. So there's a whole, you know, once you once you open up Pandora's box, then you have some humility in never wanting to take the moral high ground. Mm-hmm. Once you see how complicated moral moral equations and questions are, you will, you will be the most humble person alive because you will say, I can't say I'm pro-life because I do this, 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 and this. All I can say is I'm trying to be a better person. That's all I can say really. And so I just, that's my hope is a few less people would call themselves Christians or pro-life because it's so hard to be that if you wanted to and just say, okay, I'm trying to do a little better. I'm trying to do the right thing each day. And I, I think what's, what's revolutionary about Christianity. I think one of the things that is amazing about Christianity is it really was radical for its time. The New Testament was radical for its time. It still had some things about slaves, and I'm certainly saying, you know, they still were in the context of their culture, but... but Not a rule book. What's that? Not a rule book. Not a rule book. Not a rule book, but but a narrative of a story about let's the system of do this and God will be pleased is so uh, disempowering of humanity. Let's destroy the system. And, and like any Christian today would tell you, well, the thing about Christianity versus all other religions is we're not a religion. We're a relationship. I'm sure we've all heard that one. Well, relationship means then we just got to get in the mess together and work it out together. It's, it's not about the rules anymore. If, if, if I'm like, okay, honey, we're married. So now let me set 10 rules and let me see how far I can get towards those rules without upsetting you. That's not a very good relationship or here's my rules. And if you violate them, I'm going to send you to burning fire of hell forever. Again, not a great relationship, but a relationship that says, 
I'm going to just take away all the rules. And now we're going to have to figure out how to get along together. And we're going to destroy the systems that have been pushing against that. All of a sudden, that can be very freeing. But we're afraid of that because, man, if there's no rules, how are we going to know what's right and wrong? And so I, I kind of like your definition of it. Well, I'm just trying to be better to people around me today than I was yesterday. And, and I'm going to be self-sacrificing to make sure others are doing well. That's how marriage really works well. If you're, if you're saying, I'm going to make sure my wife's needs are met because that's going to make our life more profitable together, then, and then she's doing the same for you or your spouse is doing the same for you, then, then you can have a really great relationship together where needs are being met and you're moving forward together. And it's not perfect. It's messy, but it's, but it's wonderful in walking that together. So I've got, I, you know, my conclusion is always book recommendations and I've got two. Um, so let me grab one of them. Cause I can never, I don't know if I'm saying his name, right? Okay. Um, so the first one is this one, uh, a beginner's guide to Japan. And I, it's Pico, but I don't know if it's Ier or Ayer. He's got a bunch of Ted talks. So I'm probably saying it wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it seems like a totally random book to, to recommend, but I'm recommending it because once you get out of this world of in or out, right or wrong, rule books, you start to become really curious about the world. That's an effect of this. You become less like insular and worried about right or wrong and following rules and reading all the rules and putting the rules in order. And you just start going like, I want to learn more about other people. You know, that's, that's an effect of this that I think is the most generative part of letting that part of your life go. Um, and so this is such a cool book because it's basically uh, someone who's not from Japan, just, just sitting in another culture and just making these observations. I think it's, it's, it's a wonderful book and it's a wonderful uh, most more than that. It's a wonderful kind of uh, mental model for how to look at the world. But the second one I'd recommend for Fresno people, um, which is Anthony Cody's book, Borderland Apocrypha that just nearly won the national book award for poetry. And he got his degree from Fresno state right down the road. It's a beautiful book um, of poetry. And honestly, poetry hits on it, hits on these themes harder than any prose or any podcast could ever do it. And um, it's uh, part of the, a lot of the book is, is uh, about the treaty of uh, uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo. So the treaty after the end of the Mexican American war, and you see kind of this, you know, English and Spanish weaved in and kind of like this kind of inherent contradiction in uh, people's lives and kind of this tension. And it's such a, it's such a great, uh, great way to see through someone else's eyes. And so that's what I would recommend ultimately is, and I don't know, you know, I don't know if who I'm talking to exactly, whether it's uh, someone who's like struggling with like seeing some other way outside of the religious way that they've grown up with, or it's someone that's fresh out of that or whatever, whoever um, I think the consequence of letting go is uh, you're able to finally love people and try and learn about people. And so that's, that's the consequence. And so hopefully that makes you more curious. And uh, so, so do you want me to make a book recommendation? Oh yeah. Yeah. We always end with books. Oh, I should have been ready. Sorry. Well, Come on, Paul. What you got? Just tell me what so you're this reading. Is, this is called, I don't know if that's backwards on the screen. Yeah, no, it's, it's right. Jesus and the Disinherited. It's a very old book by Howard 
Thurman. Okay. And it's a, it's a book about how Jesus, what he spoke to the, to the oppressed and how he came to free the oppressed. And so it's written by a black man about the oppression of, of black people in America and how Jesus as a, a member of an oppressed society that then oppressed other societies like the Samaritans and, and, and such, and the prostitutes, women, you know, how he sees that Jesus spoke into that and said, this is not okay. You know, if we're allowing our oppression to cause us to be oppressors, that needs to be, be changed and, and then ultimately tied it back to, so white people, you're under this oppression of religion that's causing you to turn and oppress others. So it's a very fascinating, very good, little bit of a difficult read because it's very, very dense. So you can't really, even though it's thin, you're not going to be able to get it done in an hour. Right. Um, but a very, very good book. You know, and I actually, the other one, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to, I was going to bring something. I I'm actually on those issues. I was actually watching uh, Denzel Washington's Malcolm X, that movie for the first time. It blows me away how great that I, I don't know how I've not seen that until now. I've just recently yeah. been I've been trolling through HBO Max because they have so many like old movies that I've said I've to, I've lied to people and told them I've watched, but I haven't actually watched. <laughs> and so this is one of them where I'm just I'm finally watching it for the first time. I'm like, oh shit, this is amazing. So anyway, continue. And, a, and another really good book, and I can't show it to you because I think I read it on Kindle, but um is a book called Irresistible by Andy Stanley. I don't know if you know who Andy Stanley is, but this oh, yeah. is like the audience you're talking about, people that are in the church, but maybe want to hear. So his dad's a very, very famous Baptist pastor, and he now pastors his own mega church in Atlanta and writes a book that says, hey, we got to stop the stupid arguments of the Bible. Like, let's stop trying to defend Noah and the young earth and that there was really a Tower of Babel. Like, why are we fighting these stupid battles? And then when our kids go to college, they learn that what we're saying is, is BS and easily disprovable. And then they throw out the whole thing. He's like, let's quit trying to, to defend the stupid stuff of the Bible. And let's just focus on the life of Jesus and, and what that can mean to people. And, and he does it from a very, you know, traditional evangelical perspective. But that's why I think it can be a really effective book, because it does give people that are in that world the chance to say, whoa, this is, this is an evangelical megachurch pastor saying, who cares if there really was a flood and Noah? Why are we battling over that when the story that we actually have to tell can be life-changing for people? And let's really focus on that. So it's fantastic, well done book that made me think, oh, he's done. He's never pastoring another day <laughs> again, as long as he lives. But somehow he survived it so far. And his dad is Charles, right? Charles, Charles Stanley. You're right. Yeah, Charles. That's right. Right. See, I know my, I know my, uh, my evangelical you know your, lore. <laughs> you know, your televangelist. In your yes, I do. <laughs> well, Boy, let me tell you another movie. Have you seen uh, the Chicago seven? I have not watched that. It's been on my kind of to-do list. It's very Absolutely good. fantastic. Blew me. You know, Another courtroom drama, you think, when you see it, but boy, so well done. And a story that I didn't know a ton about, but it's, you know, it's about the Chicago riots around the 1968 Democratic Convention and the trials thereafter of Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden and those guys. And uh, really well done. I mean, uh, you know, all star cast of actors and actresses. And so highly, highly, highly recommend it. 
It's a great time for television. And I think tomorrow we get that new, speaking of Denzel, we get that new movie that he did with Jared Leto and whatever the other guy is um, about the, and this is Central Valley related. It's about the killer in, I think, Kern County. I forget his name. Um, but there's a lot of good TV and movies to watch. That's what that's 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 the whole point here. But you should read books good first. Stuff. Well, I don't books know if first. we solved the world's problems. What's that? I was just saying, read books first, then watch TV. <laughs> That'd be a good 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 order of operations. I think I think we did solve the world's problems. You know, okay. we're all good. we're you know God loves everybody equally, and we need to act that way. Problem solved, right? And. And pick up a book every once in a while and read about something that doesn't necessarily agree with your own viewpoint. How about that? It's a good word. That's a good word. Yeah. All right, Jordan, man. Thanks for uh, ringing me up and saying, let's have a chat. It's always fun. It's been good. Good.